Well, as you're taking your seats, go ahead and grab your Bibles and open them up to the book of Ephesians, chapter 2. We're going to begin this morning by, uh, by jumping in and reading the Word. Before I do that, let me just preface it really quickly by saying that if, you've, if you're visiting this morning or if you haven't been in a little while, you're jumping into the middle of a, a series that we began on Reformation Sunday, October 31st, uh, celebrating and commemorating really the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. And we've been walking through each of the five solas, with the, the five kind of core pillars of the Reformation, the, the theological underpinnings, if you will, of the Reformation. And this morning, uh, we're supposed to be looking at Scripture alone, and, um, and we're going to do that briefly. I, I need to just tell you, that's not going to be the main thrust of this message. Um, it's going to be more of a sidebar. We're going to deal with it just briefly this morning. Um, I felt really compelled this morning to make sure that... Um, um, that being the focus sola scripture to make sure I actually preached what the word of God is saying through this passage this morning. And so I want to encourage you um, that we are going to touch upon that, but we're going to really focus in uh, what this passage is really ultimately about, and that is the church of Jesus Christ. And it's very fitting. I love how the, the Lord times these things with Pastor Brian and Philip coming back uh, from Romania and just what he shared about the idea of family and the body of Christ. And it's just only God can time these things. And I, I believe as we work our way through this passage, you're going to see exactly what I mean by that. So look with me at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. The Apostle Paul writes these words. He says, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We all want to be a part of something. Every one of us longs to be a part of a community to not feel alone in this world. Every one of us at times in our life have experienced a lack of direction and we want to be a part of a movement that's bigger than ourselves. We all have the tendency at times in our lives to feel insignificant and to desire to be a part of something greater and grander. The Bible says that every one of us needs to be a part of the church. The church, it sounds strange to think about, and to many people outside of the church, it sounds like a, a really outdated concept. Really? The church? Why would I want to go be a part of something like that? I don't listen to cassette tapes or watch VHSs anymore. There are some Christians, though, within the, the church who don't believe it's important as well. They, they see the church gathering, the assembling of God's people as being unnecessary, in fact, a recent survey was put out that said that 40% of professing Christians said they don't actually believe they need the church, that they can connect with God elsewhere. But you see, all that depends on what you think the church is. What you think the church is. And many people are really confused about this. You see, the church is not a building, it's not an event, or it's not your grandmother's pastime. It's the redeemed people of God who gather and are sent out as disciples of Jesus Christ. The church is not primarily, listen to this, a place you go to, but a people you go with. 
It's not an event that you attend, but a mission you join. It's not a club that you're in, but a family that you're a part of. But again, I need to emphasize this. All of this, your perspective on the church, all of this depends on what the church is, what the Bible says the church is, and what you believe it to be, because the word of God, scripture alone, says it is so. And in the book of Ephesians, God's church is seen as God's glorious plan for reaching the nations, for revealing his wisdom, and for forming his people. Here in Ephesians 2, verses 19 through 22, Paul actually uses three separate metaphors that teach us what the church is and why it truly matters. We see in this passage that the church is the embassy of God's kingdom, it is the household of God's people, and it is the temple of God's presence. First, look with me at the the embassy of God's kingdom in verse 19. Just the first part of verse 19 really gives us this picture. He says, so then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. This is a staggering, staggering verse in light of what Paul has been saying about the Jews and the Gentiles. Remember, he's telling them now that Jews and Gentiles, both of them, are citizens in God's kingdom. And all you have to do is is look back to verse 12 to see how radical this really was. For the Gentiles, they understood that they were before Christ, separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. They were not citizens of God's kingdom. They were alienated from God's kingdom. They weren't part of God's people. They were far away from God's people and from God himself. They were foreigners. And if you've ever flown internationally, then you understand the picture that this can sometimes create, right? If you fly internationally, oftentimes when you get off into the airport, you're separated almost instantly into two different groups, right? You got foreigners or internationals go over here, and the nationals, the citizens of the country, get to go in this line, and it goes much quicker, right? And and instantly, if you're a foreigner, you realize as you look over at that other line, and the reason they're moving so quickly is because they enjoy, as citizens, certain rights and privileges that you don't enjoy, that you don't get to partake in. Reminded that we don't have the same status, the same identity. And the Jews and Gentiles, they felt this division. And Paul is reminding them that this is no longer the case in Christ Jesus. Both are citizens in God's kingdom. But at the same time, let me remind you that being a citizen of the kingdom of God doesn't actually remove your citizenship here and now. At the very beginning of the book of Ephesians, Paul is writing, he says, to those who are in Ephesus and also in Christ. You see, there's a dual citizenship for those in the kingdom of God. We find our primary citizenship in the kingdom of heaven, and then God temporarily has us living in a city or in a place in the here and now. And if that's true, then the church needs to be viewed as the embassy of God's kingdom. You see, an embassy is a place in one country that is full of people who belong to another country. But the key is that even... While they are on, in this country, they're still operating under the authority and the laws of their home country. 
They're representing their home country and the land that they're in. So the, the Canadian embassy in China is not bound by the laws of that country, nor are they required to submit to that country's leadership. They're an outpost of one nation in the middle of another. And the church is the embassy of God's kingdom on this earth. We live in this land, yes, we live in the Durham region, but the church is an outpost here that operates under the authority of Jesus Christ and the ways of the scripture, and we are called to represent God's kingdom here and now. There is a sense in which we are experiencing the greater benefits of the kingdom of God and the the greater citizenship we have in heaven in the here and now. I love this idea of not being bound by the laws of this land, and oftentimes I think this is going to become more of an issue as the laws of this land tighten around the freedom of religion and and our Christian expression of worship to our God. Listen, at the end of the day, when you're faced with two competing laws, the law we obey is the law of God's word. I love the, the concept of diplomatic immunity. I mean... We are given diplomatic immunity to live under the laws of God's kingdom, and I'd encourage you, I mean, just consider this picture for a moment. Next time you get pulled over by a a cop and he tries to give you a ticket, just hold up your Bible and say, I know, I've got diplomatic immunity. (laughs) Just come back and let me know if that works, okay? (laughs) The, The truth is, listen, that the citizenship we have in heaven does not make us worse citizens here and now, does it? It makes us better citizens here and now. The technical name for an embassy is a diplomatic mission. I love that term. That's so awesome because being a citizen of the kingdom of God is not just about our status or rights, but about our shared mission together. We are called, according to scripture, scripture exiles in a foreign land. But as citizens of the kingdom of God, we operate under his authority and we represent his character in this place that he has put us. And here, Paul reminds the church, the people of God, that they are no longer strangers and aliens, no longer far off. They've been brought near. They are full citizens in God's kingdom. The kingdom is the first image that God uses to teach us about his church. And now, listen, with each image that God uses to teach us about the church, with each image, it progressively gets more and more intense and more and more focused. It's really important to see this funneling inward. So next, we see not only, listen, that we are the kingdom, the embassy of God's kingdom here on earth, but we have been invited actually into the king's palace and actually invited to sit at the king's table. In fact, we have been made sons and daughters of the king himself. Secondly, notice this, the church is the household of God's family. The household of God's family. And the second part of verse 19 makes this very clear. We are... uh, citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. It's such a beautiful picture that we've, we've already heard a little bit about of in Romania, and, and I just watching that video just stirred my heart to be reminded of the way that they fellowship together, the way that they love each other. I love that, that Brian's right, so, like, brothers and sisters. Yeah, I mean, whenever I'm talking to Pastor Joseph on the phone, he's like, please tell the brothers and sisters there I said hello. You know, if you pass on my love for the brothers and sisters there. There is this family mentality that is so genuine, and it is genuine because it is accurate and faithful to the scriptures. It's something that we can oftentimes in our 
kind of individualistic mindset, push off to the side and, and really forget to see the beauty in. We've already seen that to be in Christ is to be adopted in the family of God. We saw that in chapter 1, which means that we have God as our father and that we have one another as our brothers and sisters. But this here, this passage isn't talking about the fact that we are family. It's speaking more actually of the dynamic of the household that we are actually called to live in. The word that's used there to describe household is a Greek word called uh, oikos, and it's where we get our word economy from. It should give you a little bit of a sense of what is being expressed here. The idea that every family or house has a particular ethos, an economy of how things work, a particular dynamic of the household. I mean, if you were to go into someone's house, you would learn instantly the kind of ethos or, or dynamic that was present in their home. You see the culture of how things work, the rhythms and the roles and the atmosphere and how things typically work in that home. The household of God is, too, called to have a particular kind of ethos or economy, and that is an economy that is shaped by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. What is a household anyways? Everyone knows there's a difference between a house and a home. I can remember moving into our home a few years back and, and looking at the, the walls, the bare walls, no furniture in the house, reminded, listen, that a home is simply a structure that provides for you a protection from the elements, a place to dwell. It's empty. There's boards nailed together providing us with shelter. It's not until you fill that home with pictures of your family. It's not until you begin to have discussions around the dinner table or wrestle with your kids on the floor that it begins to embrace a kind of ethos, an economy, a dynamic, an atmosphere in the home that makes it a household. It's about doing life together. The different cultures and rhythms of family life that make it into a household. You see, a house, the structure can represent status and prestige, but a household represents intimacy, security, and belonging. That's what the church is meant to be. This is why he emphasizes here that we are members of the household of God. He is pointing to the reality that in the household of God, we have just that. We have intimacy, shared fellowship. We have security with one another, and we have belonging in the people of God and with God himself. It's a beautiful picture of the church as a family, but let's be honest. Family isn't always pretty, is it? It's hard. It's messy, but, but it, because it's hard and messy, that is in one sense what makes it so special, so precious, because we are bound to stick with it in a particular kind of way, aren't we? I can tell you right now, I can guarantee it, that if my brothers weren't my brothers, we would have ended the friendship a long time ago. <laughs> On many occasions in our life, there were plenty of opportunities to say, I don't want to be a part of this. But the fact that we were brothers meant that we were still friends and we stuck with it and we wrestled things out literally at times. <laughs> and that's actually, listen, that, that, that necessity of not abandoning one another has been one of the things that produced such a sweet friendship now in our lives. In fact, I look at my brothers and they're some of my best friends. And the reason they're my best friends is because of what we've had to go through together to forge those relationships. 
and lets us see this sort of dynamic of the household of God and of what we are being called to as the family of God. We need to be aware of this because it's easy, listen, it's very easy to have a theoretical understanding of community and of church, but to not actually live in light of that. It's easy to agree with what I'm saying. It's a very different thing to actually live it out and to practice it in the body of Christ. Some of us, I, I fear, view church simply as a place to go, not a people to be involved with. It's just a place to attend once a week, not a people to do life with, not to engage with on deeper, meaningful levels the way that God calls us to. There, there are various reasons for this, too. Some of it is wrong priorities. You simply don't see the church the way that God sees the church. You don't prioritize the church the way that God calls you to. Some of it is just wrong perspective. You view the church poorly, maybe because of past experiences or the way that you've seen or experienced it done in the past. Some of us just have wrong expectations when it comes to the church. Something we need to recognize, this idea of wrong expectations, we need to recognize this in our own hearts when it comes to the church, to bridge the gap. Because idealism is so often the enemy of authentic community. You know, see what I mean by that? Idealism, this idea, the expectations that we have of the body of Christ can often become the enemy of authentic, genuine, thriving community. It can be the thing that doesn't draw us together, but actually pushes us apart. We don't get involved because it doesn't meet our standard or our expectations of what we think it should be. There are people who come into the church every once in a while and they'll say, I, I came and, and I, I, I didn't fit in. How many times did you come? Well, just once, but I could tell. Or you tried to get involved in a small group and things didn't go maybe the way you want and so you just said, wow, this isn't for me. Is it possible that maybe you have unrealistic expectations? Some of you think the church is less like a household and more like a hospital. It's a place where people exist to take care of you, and when that doesn't happen, you bail. But the difference between a hospital and a household isn't the need of care. It's the fact that care goes both ways. See, when you go to the hospital, you don't offer something in return to the doctor, right? You don't go, thanks, doc, give me the scalpel. What can I do for you now? It doesn't work like that. It's a one-way relationship, but in the household of God, there's a mutuality involved to our relationships. God knows our need, and he provides community to help serve our needs, yes, absolutely praise God, but listen, he also knows that one of our greatest needs is to serve others at the same time, so he gives us the church as the household of God, a place where we can be served and have our needs met, and a place where we can serve and meet the needs of others. This is the way the church is supposed to operate, and it is healthiest and thriving when it operates with this mutual ministry mentality. When we come not just to take, but we come to, yes, receive, but also to give. Three things to expect when it comes to community. Just really quickly, three things to help us in this as we grow together. First, you, you need to expect this, that community and, and authentic community is hard, and you have to commit to it. It's how the church works. It's how family works. Secondly, it takes time and you have to be patient. That's how family works, amen? 
Third, listen, it's messy, and you have to get your hands dirty. That's how family works. You know, our community is starting to be more authentic when it's starting to resemble true family life. When you can say, these people actually know me, and they still love me, when you know you're not putting on a mask and people are still involved in your life, when I can go to them no matter what and I can say help and they are there, that's when you know that you have, what you have is resembling the community that Jesus died to purchase for us. You'll know that when you create an ethos created by God's presence and God's priorities. And that is so very different than what the world sees. This, by the way, is why we do small groups. It's not to keep you busy, contrary to maybe some of your beliefs. It's not to add one more thing to your plate. In fact, we are very program light in this church because we don't want to overburden you with things to do throughout the week, constantly bombarding you. It's because it's the nature of the church to follow Jesus together throughout the week. Sunday is not enough for the kind of meaningful relationships that we need to have to be family, to be truly functioning like family. You need brothers and sisters in Christ walking arm in arm with you throughout the week, praying with you, counseling you, discipling you, challenging you, encouraging you, helping you. And I need it too. Friendships that are as deep as family. We need that. To be a stranger and an alien is to be spiritually homeless, but in Christ we are brought into the household of God. Not only that, but we are building blocks for God's temple. Notice this thirdly, because the church is the temple of God's presence. The church is the temple of God's presence. Here we see this in verses 20 through 22. It says that we are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The concept of the temple is one that's incredibly important to understand throughout the scriptures. In the Old Testament, as we saw a few weeks back, we saw this, that the Old Testament concept of the temple was that the temple was the dwelling place of God. It was where heaven and earth touched in the presence of God in time and space, where God has manifested his presence in the strongest sense of that word. In the Old Testament, in other words, if you wanted to be in the presence of God, you go to the temple. The New Testament begins to speak differently about the temple of God, but with the same basic principle, the dwelling place of God, the presence of God. When we get to the New Testament, we see that his presence is not bound to a building, but to a people. But it can be confusing to understand this concept of the temple when you read through the New Testament, because the New Testament actually refers to the temple in a few different ways. Jesus said that he was the temple. Remember that? He said, tear down this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. He was speaking of himself, his own body. He was the temple. He was God incarnate. He was the presence of God on earth. But then Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Individual believers become temples of the Spirit of God. His presence, God's presence dwelling in us. And then here, and in 1 Peter chapter 2 in particular, the church of Jesus Christ, the gathered saints, is spoken of the community of believers as a temple of God's presence. 
So what or who is the temple? Is it Jesus? Is it us? Or is it the church? Yes. And the key to understanding this is the in Christ piece. In Christ. You see, Christ is the truest temple for sure. He is God incarnate, the dwelling place of God. But listen, you and I are in Christ in this mysterious, supernatural union whereby, listen, because we are in Christ, he is in us, we too become the temple. And in a very mysterious way, the church, something unique, listen, happens when the church gathers The presence of God in his people dwells supernaturally in us because we are in Christ and he in us. And for Paul to tell the church this, this idea that they were the temple, this had great, great implications for the way they lived their lives. It was a a reminder, yes, that the presence of God dwelt among them, but it was also a reminder of their allegiance to God. You see, right at the heart of Ephesus, there was a temple dedicated to the god Artemis, the goddess Artemis. She was the, the sex goddess, and there was this temple that was given over to her. It was massive, and all of life revolved around this temple dedicated to Artemis. It was the place where people went to make sacrifices. It was a place of cultic prostitution. Lives were anchored there. So we don't have any temples like that today, don't we? If you think of a temple, here's what you need to maybe process. A temple ultimately is a sacred space or place where you make sacrifices to that which you worship. Now, with that definition, I want you just to think a little bit, even about your own life. Are there not plenty of temples around here that we frequent and visit and make pilgrimages to often? I think at this time of the season, where many people are preparing to make pilgrimages to one of the greatest temples of our time, the mall. (laughs) A place where they will make great sacrifices of time and money for that which they worship things and people. I think of arenas where we uphold our heroes and our idols, where we pour out our time and money and effort and attention. Maybe an arena that is housing our kid that we think is going to be the next great one. Or I think of places that don't have walls but trap us in where we make great sacrifices to the things we worship places on the internet that we frequent, social media that captures our attention and affections and begins to shape the desires of our hearts. You see, worshiping idols and looking to other things for our identity is the heart of the problem. And the church is looked to because they have a different allegiance. And we aren't looking to those things for meaning and identity and significance and security and joy. You see, our allegiance is attached to Jesus Christ. Our lives are sacrifices and offerings to him, are they not, church? We are the temple of the living God. It's a great reminder too, by the way, isn't it, that the church is not a building, it is a people. That's especially important for us as we even think about what God might have in store for us down the road. Maybe a permanent future facility, maybe not. Some of your hearts just sank. I could feel the oxygen sucked into the room. 
Listen, we need to be reminded, even by this text this morning, that we don't go to church, we are the church. And we gather on Sundays as the church. We forget this so often. It's actually one of the great advantages of doing this, what we call church in a high school, isn't it? I mean, we walk through these doors and we see pictures of alligators all over the place. We see posters for prom and sports clubs and all kinds of crazy other things. When we say, I'll meet you at the church, it has a whole different a meaning attached to it. You see, God's presence isn't bound by walls of bricks and mortar, but it is present in his people. And this description of the church is multifaceted that Paul is giving us this morning in these few verses. It is an embassy which is publicly looking outward. It is a household, listen, which is personal and looking inward. And it is a temple, supernatural and looking upward. But right in the middle of this passage, we actually get a glimpse of the church's substructure. The architecture, it's like Paul kind of now pulls over and he unfolds the blueprints before us. And he says, this is how the church is built. Look at its foundations. Look at what's at the heart of this foundation. And look what God is doing to build it up. And he begins by unfolding this substructure of the church in verse 20. And he says this, it is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. This is speaking primarily of the New Testament. This is referring to the New Testament apostles and New Testament prophets who were used by God at a particular point in history to bring about new revelation. Paul has already talked about the law that was done away with. And you can imagine at this time, if they're beginning to look at the Old Testament scriptures and say, well, well, that's done away with, what do we have? What anchors us? What then is our foundation? And Paul, I believe, is making it very clear. There is a new revelation through the New Testament apostles and prophets that has become the foundation of this new building, the Church of Jesus Christ. Where the old covenant created a dividing wall of hostility, the new covenant creates a new body of unity. It is, listen, it is the New Testament. Paul's going to explain this in chapter 3. It's the New Testament that reveals this mystery that was once previously hidden, that God is making one new man in the church. This was never known or understood in the old covenant. But now, only through the New Testament apostles and prophets, through the revelation of God's inspired word, can we know and understand what God is doing in history. It is his word that establishes the church as the church. It is the authoritative teachings that have been laid as the foundation of the church of Jesus Christ. Now, here's what you need to understand, that this was truly at the heart of the Reformation. You, you can make an argument that sola scriptura was actually the very thing that led to the Reformation. It was getting back into God's word that stirred the heart of Martin Luther, that woke him up as the truth was illuminated, and as he continued to study along with the other reformers, as they continued to dive into the word of God itself and understanding every part of it that they could, that the church began to flourish and the gospel was ultimately reclaimed. And at the heart of the Reformation, the primary issue is the issue of authority. Sola Scriptura is referred to as the formal principle because it gave form to everything else. You cannot have understanding of God, of Christ, of the gospel, of the church, or of any doctrine without the revealed word of God. 
gave form to everything. And in Luther's day, the authority of the church and the pope were not simply on par with, but they were actually seen as being above, ultimately, the scriptures. And it was sola scriptura that became the driving force that propelled the Reformation forward because of its focus on authority. The question that this answered was, who has the right to tell people what to believe and what to do? And when having to choose between tradition and magisteriums and popes and scripture, there is only one choice that we can make. Scripture alone is our ultimate authority. Amen, church? The controversy in the Reformation was not over the inspiration of scriptures. Both the Catholic Church at the time and the the newly uh, developing Protestant church agreed that God had inspired the word of God. The real question had to do with the relationship of scripture to tradition. Was it scripture alone that God's inspired word was the source and norm for faith and practice? Or could the Pope say that his words were on par with scripture? Who is ultimately the rightful authority in the church? Who speaks on behalf of God? The reformers taught that it was the inspired word of God that spoke for God. And it spoke primarily about the incarnate word of God, Jesus Christ. The Roman Catholic Church then and now claim that revelation comes in two modes of transmission. In fact, uh, the catechism of the Catholic Church that has been reaffirmed even within the last couple of decades says this. It says, as a result, the church to whom the transmission and interpretation of revelation is entrusted does not derive her certainty about all revealed truths from the holy scriptures alone. Both scripture and tradition must be accepted and honored with equal sentiments of devotion and reverence. It also goes on to say this, the task of interpreting the word of God authentically has been entrusted solely to the magisterium of the church, that is, to the pope and the bishops in communion with them. You see, this was an epidemic in the life of the church. The people of God at the time of the Reformation had no access to the word of God. They weren't even allowed to handle the word of God. That was reserved only for priests and bishops and popes. It was the Reformation that in many ways birthed the common people holding and reading and understanding and studying and loving and cherishing the written word of God. And this is what the reformers fought against and challenged. The recovery of the scriptures is the sole authority in the church. Alistair McGrath says this, he says, if the reformers dethroned the pope, they enthroned the scriptures. But you see, the scriptures are the authority because it is they, listen, when rightly interpreted, speak the very words of God and speak of the very word of God. Scripture is vested with the full authority of Jesus Christ as it is his revealed word. The inspired word pointing primarily to the incarnate word. Paul in verse 21 wants to make it clear, verse 20, excuse me, he says that Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. It is Jesus Christ who has unified us. We fall under the umbrella of his name in the church of Jesus Christ. And the imagery here is powerful, this idea that Christ himself is the cornerstone, that the cornerstone in an ancient world in particular was the most important part of the foundation of any structure that was being built. 
The cornerstone determined the strength and the alignment of the building. If it is off, everything else is off. Jesus had torn down the temple and was building a new one in its place. And he takes us and he builds a beautiful temple of God's presence, a temple made not of bricks and mortar, but of people and of relationships, not just the cornerstone, by the way, but the word of God tells us that he is also the builder and the owner. Matthew 16, 18, Jesus said, and I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. He is the cornerstone, he is the builder, and he is the head. He is the one who has all authority in the church, and it is unmatched. This idea of the cornerstone is referenced often throughout the scriptures, and in the Old Testament, the Psalms speak of this. Psalm 118 verse 22 says that he is the stone the builders rejected that has become the cornerstone. The idea that the builders rejecting the cornerstone means that they they passed over it. They looked over it. They saw it and discarded it. I mean, just imagine for a moment workers on a construction site in the first century looking for, laboring over the perfect cornerstone, trying to shape it just right, and they come across one, and they look at it, and they say, you know what? No, it's it's not going to be stable enough. The angles are a little bit off, and so they throw it away into a, a pile of rubble. And then another stone, and they look at it and say, you know what, no, this it's too small, it's not going to provide the kind of stability for the foundation we're looking for, so they toss it aside, and then they come across a stone that is absolutely perfect. But in their hardened heart, and in the blindness of their spiritual eyes, they take it and they think that it is the worst of all of them. And they cast it off into the pile of rubble, rejecting it utterly and completely. Not even worthy to be a stone in the building, let alone the cornerstone. Over there, it's lying in a pile of rubbish, rejected with all of the other stones. But he is the stone upon which God's kingdom, God's household, and God's temple is built. The rejected stone, listen, is a picture for us of the crucified Christ. That Jesus came in great love and grace for lost sinners and was thrown aside, rejected by the very ones he came to save, thrown and cast into a pile of trash, crucified like a common criminal. And through the foolishness of the world, the wisdom of God accomplished our redemption. He was passed over so that we could be accepted. He was cast aside so that we could be drawn in. He was far off so that we could be brought near. He was killed so that we might live. This is the glory of the gospel. What the world looks at and and doesn't quite grasp and understand. It doesn't fit into their concept of God. We're reminded here that Jesus Christ and the gospel of Christ, listen, it's not just a truth to believe but a foundation to stand upon. Jesus Christ is the foundation of the foundation. It is all the scriptures that point to Jesus and speak of him. The word of God and the person and work of Jesus Christ. What are you standing upon today? What is your foundation that you have been building your life upon? 
And Christian, don't, don't, don't feel like this isn't for you this morning. It is possible to start off building upon the foundation of Jesus Christ and the word of God and very slowly and subtly drift into beginning to build on sand once again. Maybe you've been looking at things and tossing them to the side, realizing that they, they will not do, they have not done, they will not provide you the security, the joy, the satisfaction that they claim to. And every time you come across a cornerstone you think is going to be the thing for you, you realize it just belongs in the pile of rubbish. But maybe this morning you've come across the cornerstone, Jesus Christ, and maybe, maybe the Spirit of God is working on your heart to show you that it is Jesus Christ and Him alone that can be the foundation for your life. That He is the one worthy of being built upon, that your life can be given over to being built upon the foundation of Jesus Christ. Jesus can be the cornerstone of your life by grace through faith. He is the one who bled and died so that you could live. If you would repent and believe in Jesus, you can have that life and you can begin to build on what truly matters and what will truly last. You see, it's through the gospel that we are becoming the building blocks of God's temple. God redeems us and he saves us and then he takes us and I love the picture in the, in the ancient world, the temple. Listen, they actually didn't have bricks and mortar in the way that we think of it. When they're making these ancient structures, every block needed to be shaped and cut and slid perfectly into place. And it's a beautiful picture of the way that God wants to take each one of us and begin to slot us into the temple of God. And every one of us needs to be sanded down, smoothed out, and slid in carefully to the temple of God. 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 5, should be on the screen behind me here. Peter gives this same imagery. He says this, as you come to him, I love that, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We are being built together one block at a time, one day at a time. Each block added has to be chiseled perfectly to fit into spot. But I want you to notice here that the emphasis on this passage is not individualistic, it is corporate. The yous are plural. This is not talking about me, this is talking about we. This is including all of us as the community of God's people. We together are growing into the temple where God's presence dwells. Present but not always visible. God's presence dwells among his gathered church in such a unique and precious way empowering, unless you say how, how does God's presence dwell among us? Empowering our worship, unifying our hearts, propelling our service, and growing our unity, sanctifying us, making us a holy people, transforming radically and supernaturally lives who are dead in their trespasses and sins to life in Christ Jesus. A people filled with joy and hope and faith. It is here Together that God is doing this in our midst. And this, what we have here, listen, it's a present picture of a future temple. When heaven and earth merge, and God's presence dwells among 
his people in the new temple, the temple of the earth. When people from every tribe, nation, and language from all ages will gather together in perfect unity under the banner of Jesus Christ in him to enjoy the eternal presence of our God. And here and now, we have been given the privilege. Listen, church is a privilege. We are given here a foretaste of what is to come. Yes, an imperfect foretaste. But oh, how it makes us long for that day when it will be perfect. And until that day, as we submit to the authority of his word and the authority of his son, we will continue to grow in our unity and will show the world the power of God. The church becomes the place, listen, where people come and see the reality of God's presence. And we get to celebrate that this morning through communion. I'm going to invite our worship team to come up. We're not finished, so hang in there. You see, in the Old Testament, the idea of the temple was that God's presence dwelled in a particular place. And God's people were different people, and there was a sense in which the temple was, was meant to establish this mentality in the people of God, that to tell people, come and see, come and see our God. Come and see what the presence of God is like. Come and taste that the Lord is good. But you see now in the New Testament, we as the temple of the living God, when people walk into this church, this local gathering, this local assembling of God's people, the temple of the living God, the intention of God is that people will come in here and see the presence of God. They'll fall on their face before him in wonder and awe. They will hear his word. They will experience the moving of his spirit upon their hearts, bringing conviction and understanding and truth and grace and mercy and kindness and forgiveness. They will see a picture of holiness. They will see a picture of brokenness and weakness, but they will see the picture of strength in the greatness of God. They will see God by how we love one another how we exist in unity and in love for not only him, but for one another. So they'll see pictures of reconciliation. They'll see pictures of forgiveness and grace being poured out in relationship. In Christ, we are citizens of God's kingdom. We are members of God's household, and we are building blocks in God's temple. Tim Keller says this. He says, Christians commonly say that they want a relationship with Jesus. They want to get to know Jesus better. He says, you will never be able to do that by yourself. You must be deeply involved in the church, in Christian community, with strong relationships of love and accountability. Only if you are part of a community of believers seeking to resemble, serve, and love Jesus will you ever get to know him and grow into his likeness. We need each other. Amen? Personally, I am so grateful to be a part of this church family. And I don't say that just as a pastor. I'm thankful for that too. But I say that as a member of God's family. I am personally so thankful for people who God has put around me, who love me, who care for me, who encourage me, who exhort me, who help me, who pray for me, who love me. 
This is a precious gift of God. I'm thankful that my family has it. I'm thankful that my wife has it. I'm thankful that my kids are growing up in a community where people love them because they love Jesus. This, this is such a precious thing we have, and we dare not take it for granted. It's hard sometimes. It's messy. Our sin gets in the way, but God's grace is such a beautiful, reconciling power, isn't it? You need that. I need that. We need that. The church, the body of Christ, brothers and sisters walking together as we follow hard after Christ. So this morning, we're going to celebrate communion, and I'm going to ask you to walk up, I think it's very fitting, as we take communion together this morning, listen, we walk up as a reminder, listen, that we walk not alone, but we walk together. Communion, the Lord's table, was always meant to be done corporately. It's not an individual exercise. It is meant to remind us, listen, of the unifying power of the presence of God in our midst, that we are the people of God, saved by the grace of God and the blood of Jesus Christ. It's that, listen, apart from all of our differences, apart from all of our different backgrounds and ethnicities and ways of thinking and living and doing, listen, it is this that unites us together. It's this displays the presence and power of God in our midst. And so I want to encourage you as you just prepare your hearts right now, I want you to walk, yes, dealing with your own heart individually before the Lord, and maybe this morning there's relationships that you need to figure out and you need to reconcile so that you can honor the Lord in this privilege of partaking of the Lord's table. But as you come, look around. Sometimes, you know, we, we think of communion, we're just thinking about ourselves. Look around at the family that God has given you. Rejoice that God has knit us together and that he's continuing to build us up into a temple of the Lord God Almighty, his presence dwelling among us. As we do that, let's celebrate, let's remember the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and let's celebrate, listen, that there is a day coming where we will be united in perfect harmony in the presence of our God.